1: Well, I'm eager to get to our next guest, Dr. Elijah Williams, who's chief of staff of neurology at Columbia University. He's also the founder of Hip Hop Public Health. It works in the public sector to address health inequities and to bring vital information to underserved communities through the power of art, music and science. Dr. Elijah Williams has joined us before on the show several times. Dr. Williams, how are you? I'm
3: doing well thanks for having me
1: back it's great to have you back i i, I want to start with we, and we don't have a lot of time so i want to get right to it and what you're doing with hip-hop public health what you're focusing on right now is helping to reach underserved communities of color uh, with the vaccine and i'm looking right now at the new york city government website that shows data for dem- different demographics with regard to uh, how, how what portion of their population has been vaccinated um white people, uh, 44% in New York City have been vaccinated. That compares to 38% of Hispanic and Latino and 29% of uh, black New Yorkers. Why are we continuing to see this disparity?
3: Oh, so it's a multiple reasons we're seeing. But uh, if you drill deeper into the numbers, there has been progress across the board. Uh, but the disparity is still very real. Um, if, if you extrapolate uh, across the country, and you look at the national data, uh, we've actually uh, if you uh, Hispanics are doing ex- very, very well. about thirty two percent of Hispanics have been uh, vaccinated according to recent trends versus their total share of the population, which is about seventeen percent. But still, if you look at the uh, if you look at the African American data among blacks, uh, you know we have also surpassed our share of the total population with about thirteen percent across the country being vaccinated versus, you know, 12% of the total share. But I completely agree there is still a tremendous uh, amount of work that's left to be done. You know, I've always said that building trust, you know, isn't done overnight. It takes time. The real challenge is that we are racing against time. In this situation, we're racing against the variants. And and so I think we just need to continue to increase, escalate, and intensify um, our efforts across multiple levels um, and get to the place where uh, we actually get to a door-to-door vaccination campaign um, and, um, and really hyper-localized messaging.
1: A door-to-door vaccination campaign, sort of like what we, what we see with the census every 10 years. If you don't fill it out, somebody comes to your door and knocks on it, right?
3: Exactly, exactly.
1: And yeah. that, that's difficult, though, to do, especially with a two-shot vaccine. It works with a one-shot vaccine, the Johnson and Johnson shot. But how do we know that somebody will be there the second time around?
3: It's it's a challenge. To, it's a huge challenge. But you know, I've always said this is you know this is the United States of America. We have we have uh, we have you know robots on Mars right now. I yeah. Think that we you know there's nothing beyond our capacity to accomplish. And I think that we just need to bring you know the best minds together. Uh, But more importantly than the best minds, we need really uh, grassroots approaches to uh, the solution. I've always said, um, you know, the the closer you are to a problem, you know, the closer you are to a solution. Uh, And so we need to get people who are actually living in and with the problem. And we need to figure out a way to work with them to extract, you know, scalable solutions. And I'm sure uh, there are examples in, in some smaller communities across across the country where success has been you know has been seen in communities of color um but you know and so i think that we need to you know take these best practices uh, and scale them up
1: what are some of these best practices because you said it starts with trust and the idea of of communicating and i know several people that have yet to get a vaccine and 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 they're concerned they have concerns they want to wait they say it's new what's the right messaging here
3: well, the right messaging is to first acknowledge uh, and uh, be non-judgmental mm-hmm. uh, when discussing uh, these issues with someone who is skeptical or hesitant or lacks confidence. I mean, we also have to acknowledge that there are certain people, no matter what we say or do, um, will, will, will continue to refuse. But I do think that uh, there are still a number of people who can be persuaded. Uh, but again, it's going to take... Um, you know, re- real you know personalized effort um, to really identify uh, you know networks uh, uh, and, and leaders within networks, uh, credible messengers, champions within these networks uh, who are open to the vaccination message or, uh, or or have themselves been vaccinated, and working with these you know these ne- these uh, these leaders, these messengers, these uh, you know credible individuals. With it, work with their networks, um, and and it has to be one to one. It has to be one on one uh, persuasion. You know, at, at Columbia where I am, for example, uh, you know we have multi layers of, of interventions, mm. all the way down to those one on one conversations uh, with people that you trust. And I think that you know I don't think that um, uh, you know carpet corporate, corporate bombing messages are going to work. I think we've already plucked all the low hanging fruits from that type of approach. I think we're now down to that door-to-door, that one-on-one uh, conversations with people that uh, people trust.
1: Yeah, this is where the real work really begins. And speaking of that, um, we only have about 30 seconds left, but I want to get to some of what else you're doing at Hip Hop Public Health, because it's not just about the vaccine.
3: Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You know, we address health disparities and health inequity, um, you know, as a, as a whole. And, and we identify areas where uh, communication uh, there's been great quality mm-hmm. of communications with certain communities, uh, and we take our, our approach, which is a, a really scientifically embedded you know, evidence-based uh, approach to right. uh, motivating behavior change Do- in, these, in these communities. Right. Uh, Dr.
1: Williams, we, we unfortunately have to leave it there. This time, that's Dr. Elagide Williams, Chief of Staff of Neurology, also founder of Hip-Hop Public Health. Bloomberg Philanthropies has provided a grant to Hip-Hop Public Health. He's also a Chief of Staff of Neurology at Columbia University. Shares of DD ShuSheng, uh, DD Inc. I should say, the parent company of DD ShuSheng, uh, the ADRs right now lower by more than 20.5 percent, absolutely plunging just a few days after going public here in the United States. Matt Turner is stocks reporter at Bloomberg News. He joins us now on the phone from Weehawken, New Jersey. Matt, let's start at the beginning here. A Slide like this, all because of a regulatory crackdown in China. Give us the details here. What's going on?
4: Yeah, Tim, thanks. Uh, I mean, this all sort of started last week. We saw the uh, we saw the IPO where they raised $4.4 4 billion. Um, and, you know, shares kind of climbed in the first few days of trading and uh, really pulled their market cap up uh, close to $80 billion. But then, um, you know, Friday, we had regulators in China come out saying that they were going to launch uh, this cybersecurity review into the company. And they had halted the uh, registration of new users. And we just saw shares kind of trade lower uh, on Friday. And then uh, you know that really escalated over the weekend. Uh, we saw that they expanded that probe uh, into two other firms, including DD, uh, and they also asked the app stores to actually uh, remove their apps uh, from the app stores completely. And so obviously that leads us into this morning, where we saw uh, you know shares really really take a nosedive. They were down uh, as much as 30% in pre-market, and then wow. you know as you said, now they're they're still down uh, well over 20% today.
1: Look, this was obviously not priced in. When you see a a a a decline like this, a, a move of this magnitude. This is something that was unexpected uh, by regulate, regulatory authorities. I'm thinking, though, about the timing here, right? Just a few days after the company goes public. What do we know about what the Chinese government has said to DD and uh, how they feel about it uh, going public in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean,
4: uh, it's a little unclear. Um, We've had the Wall Street Journal report uh, earlier that the uh, Chinese regulators may have actually warned uh, Didi as as far back as three months ago uh, and and had asked them to delay that IPO. Um, Obviously, that wasn't the case. Um, Didi, in fact, even flagged uh, in their regulatory filings for the IPO that there were some sort of, uh, you know, there were those antitrust concerns and they weren't actually sure uh, you know if those would be resolved fully. Uh, you know if they were going to face more fines in the future. Um, so it, it was something that may not necessarily have been priced into the stock, but it was definitely. Um, you know if you kind of dug into the to the filings and and even uh, you know spoke to some of those people and analysts in China, um, you know it, it was a concern at least inside the company.
1: There's also just the latest in sort of a crackdown on, on, on Chinese companies. Um, as uh, you and Felipe write in this story, investors worry that the latest security-based probes have opened a new front in uh, Xi Jinping's broader campaign against China's internet giants that began in November with the collapse of Ant Group Company's $35 billion IPO and subsequent antitrust investigations into Alibaba and Meituan. I- I'm wondering how investors are digesting this news when it comes to other to ADRs of other uh, Chinese companies that are listed here in the U.S.
4: Yeah, it's it's been a pretty broad-based sell-off today. Um, we we had looked uh, earlier at, uh, you know, all these uh, Chinese firms that have actually IPO'd this year. There were 37 that have started trading uh, since the start of 2021. Um, and of that group, uh, 31 of those were lower at this point, wow. uh, you know, as of about half an hour ago. So, you know, it's a pretty broad-based sell-off. Um, you know, even shares of Goldman and Morgan Stanley, who were both uh, underwriters of this uh, DDI IPO, were, were lower today. So it's kind of uh, it's hitting every, everyone that's involved and, uh, you know, even, even some of those ancillary stocks that are not uh, obviously directly linked to DDI.
1: So does this make uh, Chinese companies that are thinking about listing in the United States, does this make them think twice about doing that?
4: Yeah, I I mean, from everybody that we've talked to, uh, you know, this is this is something that, uh, you know, the analysts are saying is going to be uh, a concern for some of these IPOs that are going forward, even some of the ones that are are planned for later this year. Um, And it it is part of that push uh, that we've seen from from China and from Xi Jinping to to try and get these Chinese firms to list uh, domestically, uh, you know, in Hong Kong and in China, as opposed to listing in the U.S. market
1: yeah I, I wonder Matt, just in the last 10 seconds we have what analysts are saying about the business, uh, how this actually affects the company's business if people can't new customers can't download the app.
4: Yeah, I mean, for now, uh, you know, it's a little unclear. They're saying that, uh, you know, like we've seen some of the other crackdowns, you know, the financials haven't really uh, borne any of the impact. But, right. You know, that's something that they will be watching closely going forward.
1: Matt Turner, is stocks reporter at Bloomberg News. He joins us live on the phone from Weehawken, New Jersey, giving us the latest on DD Inc., the parent company of DD Shusheng. Thanks so much, Matt, for joining us. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic. On Bloomberg Radio. Well, here at Bloomberg Business Week, we've been covering the unequal distribution of vaccines around the world. What's happening here in the United States is, is certainly the exception, not the rule, with vaccines pretty much available for free to anyone who's eligible. But a new story in Bloomberg Business Week by James Payton and John Lauerman talks about life-saving vaccines becoming profit machines for drug makers and for middle-income countries. Protection from the virus can cost governments dearly. Joining me now is Joel Weber, editor at Bloomberg Business Week. He's with me in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. Also uh, joining us is James Payton, healthcare reporter for Bloomberg News. He joins us on the phone from London. Uh, Joel, this is a a fantastic piece that that really dives into the cost, uh, and really what it costs countries around the world, uh, to actually get this life-saving tonic, right? This life-saving vaccine. And And I'm wondering, how much should they... Be getting charged by these for-profit pharmaceutical companies that, for decades, have been boogeymen.
5: That's what we're we're finding out, right? And and I think what what sticks out to you, um, or or to me at least in this story is is actually just what a big windfall, COVID vaccines have become for pharma. I mean, we're looking at a hundred billion plus dollar business in twenty twenty one and depending on how things go you could just imagine their the booster shots look like another another wave of money for them but there is this have and have not question that i think we we as a as a newsroom have spent a lot of time thinking about and talking about and reporting about and i think this story is another version of that because there are the the americas and and granted there are a few countries quite like ours that can pull off pull yeah. off what we can pull off and that leaves the rest of the world in a different predicament and especially for the low to middle income countries the options do not look great um and it, these vaccines are not always cheap um, and so that brings in the question of soft power as well. So, James, let's bring you in here. What, what stands out to you um, as, as you were uh, writing about the story?
0: Yeah, well, good to be with you. I mean, I think you, you nailed it, I, you know, in terms of the debate, because um, I think it's an important one to have. You know, these huge sales that you mentioned that are flowing to the vaccine makers raise that question, right, of what is a fair price and, and what is a fair profit um in the middle of a raging pandemic, you know, and, and as you say, these vaccines are saving lives, they're rescuing uh businesses, allowing uh countries like the US and, and the UK where, where I am to uh reopen. Obviously that is immensely uh valuable uh to those countries that are um fortunate enough to have vaccines, but you know, vast parts of the world have have this limited um access and some of the people I talk to for this story question you know, what level of profits are are justified given that uneven distribution uh, we're seeing. And given that many of these vaccines are heavily funded by governments, by the U.S., by the U.K., Germany, and and some nonprofits that themselves receive funding um, from governments. And there is an interest, you know, beyond the humanitarian one is, you know, as we've uh, written a lot about and discussed, um, you know, there's a lot of stake from a a health perspective uh, in an economic sense, as well, if this virus keeps circulating, uh, new variants could emerge that could be you know, problematic and that could prolong the pandemic. So, you know, this is an important issue and it's not just a question of the availability of vaccines and when these countries will get access um, to these shots, but also whether they'll be affordable uh, when, when they when they finally do get the chance to. Uh, to purchase them. So right. know, I think it's a I think it's an important topic.
1: Well, it, it's it's something that we're seeing play out right before our eyes with the Delta variant. If we were able to, you know, this is the variant that is is more concerning than other variants that were predominant here in the United States just a few months ago and it's certainly ripping its way around the UK and Indeed, the predominant variant of new infections here in the United States, and it's certainly concerning. Um, I, I wonder about some of the examples that you write about. Take us into what you learned about Senegal, for example.
0: Yeah, well, we looked at we looked at some countries around the world, and um, you know, the thing on pricing is that there's a lack of transparency, mm-hmm. and there's very little disclosure about who is paying what. So, some of the prices are starting to emerge. You know, we've looked at some regulatory filings. Uh, you know, government statements uh, and some of the sources that we've talked to. And, you know, you can start to paint a picture. But you mentioned Senegal. You know, it's a lower income uh, uh, country. They are paying, uh, they agreed to pay about roughly 20 U.S. dollars a dose uh, for uh, Sinopharm's vaccine. Now, this is one of the Chinese um, vaccine makers that we we talked about um, in our piece as well. And now, you know, you can look at some of these prices and say, you know what, that doesn't sound like a lot, given, you know, the potential of vaccines, given what we're talking about. And also some of these costs, to be fair, you know, they, they pale in comparison to the, the economic costs of, of not vaccinating your population, right? I mean, you, you consider the, the trillions of dollars globally that um, that's at stake. But for a country like Senegal, um, you know, I mean, we look at some data showing that their um, annual per capita health spending is less than 60 U.S. dollars, wow. and for a lot of these, for a lot of these countries, you know, they're <clears throat> they're grappling with multiple health threats. Uh, you know, around the world, there's obviously diseases like malaria and HIV and, and many others, and these are you know stretched health budgets that uh, these countries are working with, and you know, they're not in a position, uh, obviously, to to spend big on vaccines. They might be able to do it. They might be able to pull it off but then that raises the the risk that they'll have to um, divert spending uh, from other areas to, uh, to pay the bill for vaccines. And that could have a long-term impact that we'll be writing about um, probably for years to come.
5: And, and that actually, there's this great quote that I, I loved in here, which is, this is essentially a seller's market. And that's a quote that refers not only to uh, what uh, the, the US companies can charge, but also even the Chinese ones, which I found surprising, that in some cases, the Chinese vaccines cost even more than the, the American ones, despite uh, maybe not having the same efficacy.
3: Absolutely.
0: And the China side to this, I think, is, is fascinating, because there has been a focus, you know, we have done some stories on this, but looking at the geopolitical benefits that China gets from exporting vaccines to the world... But overlooked, perhaps, is the financial benefit to China. You know, China, you may recall last year, talked about vaccines uh, being a global public good. You know, they wanted to treat vaccines as a global public good. And, you know, we're finding now and China, Chinese companies are finding now that they're also, you know, turning out to be uh, lucrative um, products for Chinese companies as well. And now, you know, one person I talked to at the Council on Foreign Relations pointed out that. Um, China likely sees that as something that's right. mutually beneficial. You know, they can benefit, the world can benefit from uh, their vaccines. But um, right. some of these vaccines are not cheap uh, that the Chinese companies
1: are selling. So, well, it's a fantastic story uh, by James Payton along with John Lowerman. You can read James's story on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com slash businessweek. James Payton is healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. Joel's with me in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevich on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Hello, hello. It's Bloomberg Business Week. Tim Stenevich live in the Interactive Brokers Studio in New York. Carol Masser taking a well-deserved day off today. Well, Andy Jassy, it's day two for the brand new CEO of Amazon. Shares of Amazon are higher today by 4.79% as we speak, reaching a new intraday record. But he's got his work cut out for him. Long term, Jassy has to navigate Washington and European regulators and, of course, appease a growing workforce of hundreds of thousands of warehouse employees. Heather R. Younger is founder and CEO of Employee Fanatics. It's uh, an employee experience consulting firm. She joins us now from Denver, Colorado. Heather, it's great to have you. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. So what is the advice that you would give Amazon's brand new CEO, Andy Jassy, who, mind you, has been somebody who's been at Amazon for decades. He's most recently head of AWS in his first week of, of uh, being CEO.
2: I think no matter what, he he needs to be really clear up front what type of leader he's going to be and and how he might be different from Bezos, of course. And even though he's been there, you know, setting his mark, deciding what kind of leader he wants to be and how he's going to show up for all of those hundreds of thousands of people who are looking to him for leadership. That's that's one thing. I think, secondly, um, he's going to need to take some real clear steps to listen to those people, because I'm not sure anybody's been listening. And understanding what their needs are, what their complaints might be, and just to be committed to doing the right thing as it relates to them.
1: It's so interesting that you said that that, that element of listening, because when I was reading the notes that our producer Paul sent to me, um, you mentioned listening. And it struck me because, as I mentioned earlier in the show, I just finished uh, our colleague Brad Stone's new book about Amazon, and I was struck with many parts of it. But he, he shares this story from a little over a year ago, April of 2020, when the United States is in the midst of this pandemic, Amazon is hiring so many new people. Uh, These are essential workers, the service quickly becoming essential to people who are in lockdown and need to get groceries and supplies. And Jeff Bezos made a surprise visit to one of Amazon's warehouses, but it was the first time that he had visited one of those fulfillment centers in years.
2: Yeah, and I think that's a really big mistake. I'm hoping that Jesse says, you know what, I'm going to be the listening leader. I'm going to be going around and I'm going to do a listening tour, uh, go to as many centers as I can, even if it's virtual or in-person, but in-person is probably better so you can really see how people are living and in the in the way in which they have to work every day and trying to, trying to get their work done. So, yeah, I hope that would be his first step is listening tours, just going around. Um, you know, the listening, is it's, it's, no, it'll go a huge way for those people because they hadn't been listened to. They, people know when they've been heard. They know when they're cared for by the leaders who they look to for guidance. And that would build a level of trust that he needs right off the bat, particularly with any new initiatives he's trying to get you know, put through. How does he do
1: this at scale, though? Because this is something that Amazon is, is a unique beast, right? It has fulfillment centers all over the world. Is at hundreds of thousands of employees. How does Jassy do this in a way that makes it look like he's going, on, uh, he's going beyond just doing it for show?
2: Yeah, I mean, in the end, he doesn't have to do it all by himself. He can have the whole C-suite. He can have outside consulting firms like my employee fanatics right, come in and help with some of the listening sessions. In the end, it's uh, when they know that they are being heard and that there's an intent to act on at least some of what it is they're saying, and they see the results, and then you feed them back through action, telling them what it is you're doing for them, they know they've been heard. It makes it just makes a huge difference. It validates it. It makes them feel that the work that they're doing is meaningful and they feel like there's more than just the day-to-day, but that there's it's leading to some bigger mission for the world.
1: Okay, so apart from a listening tour, what else can Jassy do, especially when it comes to working with other executives to help build up that team?
2: Yeah, I mean I think, you know, right off the bat, if he's able to establish with his leadership team that that things are going to change, that it is going to be about making sure that they're driving a more positive culture and that every one of those people on the leadership team has to take responsibility so he's not in it all by himself. That'll be super clear. Making sure that maybe he does put someone in charge that really is super focused on having the pulse for employees, suggesting uh, really good avenues for cultural improvements, um, and making sure that they're always keeping those at the front line of the customer experience right at the front of all their cultural improvement so that they're, you know, it's not so um, just coming from top down, but maybe creates culture teams all throughout the organization and they report into this new person. But making sure that there's someone that has the pulse. I think the other thing, through all of this kind of crazy time, is making sure that, um, that he and his team and the, and the team members can be adaptable, less fearful, and they'll be less fearful, more adaptable when they're aware of changes that are coming down the pike and mm-hmm. being super open and communicative about this.
1: You know, it's interesting that this is all happening at the tail end, at least in the United States, of the pandemic. And it was announced at the beginning of the year back in January that Jeff Bezos would be doing this. But it's still the pandemic. And one thing that we're seeing happen around the U.S. is employees uh, leave firms for new jobs. And in some cases, uh, not even going into the office to be able to say goodbye to uh, employees and to their colleagues who they've known for years because of just where we are right now. What are the takeaways that we can learn from a transition like uh, Bezos and Jassy's that, that we can all apply to our own corporate lives?
2: Mm. I think it, uh, this idea of reinvention is a big one so reinventing you know yourself as a leader and then how do you and then if you're over an organization as a beastly as amazon how do you kind of reinvent but don't do it in the silo and don't just do it at the leadership level how do you, how are you more inclusive in your decision making um i think that's going to be the biggest thing for leaders coming forward and and i'm not just talking from you know the marginalized group side i'm just talking about generally how are we more inclusive in the decision making process that people feel bought into things and when we're talking about these people that are not coming back it's probably because leaders aren't getting a clue. They don't mm. understand what it is their people needed from the beginning. They needed to be listening, and they needed to be more inclusive.
1: In thirty seconds, Heather, we, uh, you know, we know on Wall Street, uh, leaders of, of publicly traded companies are judged by returns. How are you going to judge Jesse?
2: You know, I, I'm, I hate to say it, but those those news uh, articles, the things that you see, the coverage that's happening with employees, and yeah. the sour taste that's leaving in their mouth, I think I'm going to judge him by. How, how that goes down. And if it's going to be, if he's going to be able to turn the tide of the negative culture and bad press that they're getting, what is he going to do to set his mark to create a more positive culture?
1: Yeah, it's a, a really good metric to use. Heather R. Younger is founder and CEO of Employee Fanatics. It's a firm that works with companies to help employee experience. Heather joining us from Denver, Colorado. Heather, thanks so much for your time.
3: I'm rather in my car is the drive to the close. That
4: punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
1: Yes, indeed, it is that time, the drive to the close. We are just over 10 minutes away from the close of the market on this Tuesday, July 6th. I'm mean, I used to saying July. We are more than halfway done with the year after all. Joining us now is Randy Watts, Chief Investment Strategist at O'Neill Global Advisors. Joining us on the phone from Miami. Randy, how are you this afternoon?
6: Uh, Tim, I'm I'm well. I hope you and your family are well, and it's good to hear your voice.
1: Yeah, it's good to hear yours as well. Thanks so much for for taking the time. We're doing well. Thanks, uh, Randy. Take us into to how how you're thinking about the market. I mean, look at what we're we're poised to do today. The S and P five hundred looking like it's going to snap a seven day winning streak. The Dow down today for the first time in in five sessions. How are you reading into it?
6: Well, I think technically there's a slight lag right now of the S and P versus the Nasdaq. That's really being driven by a rotation mm. into large-cap growth stocks. The market, though, overall is trending within a channel that is really dated back to November, with the upper end rising to about 4500 and the lower end at the 50 DMA, which is about 4211 Right now, the leadership is in tech, retail, and healthcare. Some of the more cyclical value groups like transports, materials, financials, have been basically consolidating their gains from earlier in the year, and probably need a little bit of time to go go sideways before they make another thrust up.
1: How much higher does this bull market go?
6: I think it depends on on two things. It depends on earnings, and it depends on yields. As you mentioned a minute ago, you know the ten-year back to one thirty-five gives an awful lot of valuation support for stocks. I think the thing investors are wrestling with right now is coming out of that that first quarter earnings season. Earnings estimates went up quite a bit for the S and P. People are looking for $188 in earnings this year and 211 for next year. If those earnings come through, I do think there's upside on the market because the market would be about 20 times next year's earnings. But I think what investors are wrestling with is, is two things. First is, is there going to be a margin squeeze in the second quarter? Hmm. We've seen a lot of costs go up, whether that's raw materials, excuse me, raw materials or, uh, Average hourly earnings, which are obviously labor costs, are going up here. And then I think the second thing they're wrestling with is because there are so many supply shortages, both in materials and also in labor, are our, our companies going to be able to meet their production schedules for the for, for the second quarter and for the third quarter? And so I think that's why you've seen a little bit of a move back to growth here. Is that? People aren't sure whether they should trust those earnings estimates.
1: Well, where are you on the transitory versus not transitory debate? Because when you, when you talk about the margin squeeze here, what you're talking about is higher input costs and, and to what extent those margins are going to be hurt by those and uh, by a difficult time getting supplies and inputs. Um, is this something that's here to stay or is this something that is indeed, the word, in the words of the Fed, transitory?
6: I think it's less transitory than people think. What tell what, people are having? Why? To offer,
1: why do you think that?
6: I think for two reasons. First is that because people are having to offer workers higher wages in many jobs than they did before the pandemic, and once labor gets back up, it's not like they're going to lower those wages, right? So if you had someone uh, in the kitchen in a small restaurant, you were paying eighteen dollars an hour, and now you're paying him twenty. You're not going to cut it back to eighteen mm-hmm. once there's a little bit more labor force. You're going to keep paying him twenty. And and the second is other elements like rent, though it's been down in New York City, it's up in a lot of places around the country, residential rents. I don't think those are reverting down, you know, anytime soon. So I think there's some things that are going to be stickier than people suspect. So I do think inflation is going to run higher. To refresh for your your listeners, inflation was 5% for 12 months at the end of May. So inflation is running high. It's been a problem. I think the Fed and many central banks around the world are willing to let these economies run hot because they're worried about uh, the slowdown that we're coming out of. But I do think it's an issue.
1: Yeah, I and mean, look, you're, you're kind of reading my mind here because one of the stories that I want to talk about in a few minutes is by our own Alex Tanzi talking about how storing U.S. rents are the sticky part of inflation with staying power. And according to Apartment List, the median national rent climbed 9.2 percent in the first half of 2021. Um, that's according to Apartment List. So how, so that raises the question. You, you talk about rising rents. You talk about rising wages. What are the other metrics that you're looking at to tell you whether inflation is sticky?
6: Well, obviously, uh, commodities are up a great deal. When you look at the commodity index, you know, oil's up 50% year-to-date, aluminum's up 29, copper's up 22. And a lot of these, because of supply shortages, are not going to instantly go back down. But They may go back down over time, but it's not like it's going to happen in the next month or two. So I think that's going to force companies to face an issue with either they have to let their margins get squeezed or they're going to have to raise price. And if they raise price, what is that going to do for demand? I, do, I don't want it to sound too bearish. The economy is recovering. We are growing. It's just that the market's got a lot of good news in it. And we need those earnings estimates to come through for the market to continue to be able to move higher right here.
1: So, so you're saying the market's gotten a little ahead of itself?
6: I think the market's a little ahead of itself right now, it, but it's been supported by those low yields. Mm. Now, if the 10-year was higher, we'd be having a different conversation because there would be pressure. But I think the move back to growth stocks recently tells you that some investors are nervous about whether that out your number of 211 is the right number.
1: Yeah, look, I guess also the question is, Is really about how to be defensive, and not necessarily that you need to be defensive. And that's not what I'm saying. What you're suggesting, but it does sound like that, you know, you could be in for a a, quite the ride. And, And how would you position your portfolio right now? I mean, we do like some of the big cap growth stocks. Still, we do
6: like healthcare. Healthcare in particular, we think is going to have a better second half of the year as the utilization rate of healthcare services gets back to normal obviously there are a lot of healthcare areas that suffered during the pandemic as people didn't want to go to the doctor they didn't want to see their oncologist they didn't want to see their their, their cardiologist so i think that's going to that's going to pick back up we still like a lot of areas consumer discretionary people have been pent up there's an awful lot of consumer mm-hmm. savings waiting to get spent People didn't buy a lot of clothes and shoes, et cetera, for a year. Now people are going back out. We like the travel space, hotels, airlines, et cetera. So I do think there's still a positive story with regards to this recovery. But I do think maybe some of the raw materials, transports, financials, a little bit ahead of themselves. So I would shy away from those in the short term.
1: Let's talk a little bit about some of the stocks that you are bullish on. Intuitive Surgical, the maker of the uh, Da Vinci Surgical device. Uh, why are you so bullish on this?
6: I think there's a real secular theme going there. There's, there's
1: two things. There's a cyclical and a secular. The secular is that a lot
6: more, they're the leader in laparoscopy, so operations that are done very minimally invasive. And they're, the, they're the clear leader there. More and more operations are being done that way. There's a great expansion, and that's going to continue. Second, people put off elective surgeries over the last year because of COVID. No one wanted to go to the hospital. And I think now you're going to see things like hip replacements, knee replacements, et cetera, mm. Start to pick up, and that's going to really provide a nice tailwind to what's already a good secular story for an industry leader.
1: Okay, what about Nike?
6: You know, Nike had a, had had a great number yeah, last quarter. That was huge. We're seeing a we're seeing a pickup in demand. I think people are spending more money on both apparel and on footwear. They continue to do well overseas. They've done a great job with expanding in Asia. They've also done a great job with their digital marketing and e-commerce, which is going to continue. So, I think like intuitive surgical, they benefit from both the cyclical pickup what's going on right now, as well as with Nike a secular pickup as they expand into apparel more, they expand in Asia, and they get more of their orders coming in digitally online.
1: Randy, we are going to have to leave it there. It is always great to chat with you. Thank you so much for taking the time and joining us on a Bloomberg Business Week Radio. That's Randy Watts, Chief Investment Strategist at O'Neill Global Advisors, joining us on the phone from Miami. <laughs>